Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins and it's great to have your company. Luis Roca. Corey Givens. Alva Brown. Rebecca Baca. That voice you just heard is Liz Thompson, and that is from Liz's very special video. You're in for a very special treat this week. Uh, It's an amazing story. But first, this is a podcast about El Camino, the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. It's a 500-mile pilgrimage to the bones of Christ's Apostle St. James in northern Spain. Whether you're listening to me on a tractor or in the car or on the porch or veranda, as we say around here, you might be cooking for those you love or walking to prepare for a Camino. You might be working on your Camino story for a book or a presentation. Perhaps you're on the Camino right now. Wherever you are, welcome to the community. Pilgrims on the Camino walk with the blessing of St. James. St. James was a leader. He inspired people and continues to do so. Most pilgrims walk toward the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, where we're told the remains of St. James are interred in a crypt beneath the cathedral in the town square. Pilgrims arrive mostly around mid-morning, or aim to, and attend a pilgrim's mass at midday. You receive a blessing and then begin to try to make sense of what's happened to you. You may have walked 500 miles or 800 kilometres from saint jean pied de port on what's called the Camino Francaise, the most popular Camino. Or maybe you arrived in Santiago after walking the Camino Portuguese along the coast of Portugal, or the Camino Inglés from A Coruña on the southeast corner of the Bay of Biscay. The Camino is, for many of us, our place of solace, our place of peace. Many can't believe we were lucky enough to stumble upon it, and many have indeed stumbled on the Camino, many times. It's part of the allure, the stumbling, falling, struggling, the getting lost, and the catching up with friends from around the world, being found, learning from others, sharing their journey. Pilgrims get up each day, place one foot in front of the other, and continue on their Camino. We don't really know where our journey will lead us. In the course of writing this week's script, I stumbled upon this wonderful poem by Sylvan Caymans and Rabbi Jack Reamer from a Jewish prayer book. At the rising of the sun and at its going down, we remember them. At the blowing of the wind and in the chill of winter, we remember them. At the opening of the buds and in the rebirth of spring, we remember them. At the blueness of the skies and in the warmth of summer, we remember them. At the rustling of the leaves and in the beauty of autumn, we remember them. At the beginning of the year and when it ends, we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. When we are weary and in need of strength, we remember them. When we are lost and sick at heart, we remember them. When we have joy we crave to share, we remember them. When we have decisions that are difficult to make, we remember them. When we have achievements that are based on theirs, we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. I love that line in there, when we have joy we crave to share, we remember them. Well, I have joy to share. And that's this week's guest, Liz Thompson a former police officer from Albuquerque in the United States. Liz is on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Thank you, Dan. It's such an honour and privilege to be here speaking with you. And what a beautiful poem. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yours is such a great story and I can't wait to tell it. I always write a detailed script, almost 250 of them now, putting bits and pieces in the brew. And in the course of my research, finding that poem... It just fit perfectly, and I was just delighted when I found it. So, Liz, before we get to your story, how did the Camino come into your life? 
Well, a friend had um, actually walked uh, part of the Camino um, and had, you know, shared it through social media. And I was just in awe of, of his adventure and the beautiful pictures and just what a wonderful experience it was for, for this friend. And I was working at the time, so I, I didn't have time to go on such an adventure, but I was getting close to retirement. And I had said to my friend that I would, that is something that I would really like to do after retirement. So my friend said, you're on, I will, I will do it with you after you retire. So that's how I came to plan uh, my Camino. And it just happened to intersect nicely with another of my um, plans for after my retirement. And that was to honor the victims of homicide as that was my job to investigate murders in my hometown of Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, in the Southwestern U S yeah. You came onto my radar. Um, somebody sent me an article that you had written in the Washington post. Um, because I, I guess people like to send me possible guests, you know, stories of people that I might like to interview. And as soon as I read it, I thought, Oh my gosh, I've got to get Liz. I've got to find Liz. Because, as you said, you walked the Camino to honour 240 victims of homicide who died on your watch because you were the head of the homicide unit between October 19, 2012, until your retirement, as you said, in December of 2017. So tell us about that moment when you realised, hmm, the Camino would be a good way to honour these people. Yeah, I, I love to tell this part of the story. So what had happened is... I I was the supervisor of the homicide unit, and so we investigated murders, and I did that for five years. And I was responsible to maintain all of the statistics and, you know, keep track of the cases and and their status. And I found that the easiest way for me to keep track was that every time we got called out to... Um, a suspicious death, I would, you know, write down the date and the person's name. And I, so I had this handwritten log that I was keeping. And as the years went by, this became a, you know, a ritual for me um, to write the person's name and to maintain this record. And, you know, it, it became a very painful and and symbolic ritual for me Um, as I wrote their name you know they would no longer write their name and I took over responsibility um, for for them and and trying to get justice for this person who had tragically lost their life to violence so I as I grew close to retirement I knew that the the list had approached 200 names. I I, I wasn't sure exactly because I just hadn't counted. And so after I retired, I was really battling with what can I do, honor these victims, but honor them equally. Um, as we investigated murders, I would become very... Uh, upset because some people's uh, deaths were high profile and they'd get a lot of attention from the media and a lot of attention from politicians or police administrators. Then other deaths, it was like they didn't matter. They didn't get a lot of attention. And that really, really bothered me. I felt that that was not right. And I wanted to honor the victims, just all of them. Hmm. So I I couldn't really come up with a way to really honor 200 people, 200 plus people. Well, at the same time, I was planning to walk the Camino 
with my friend, Frederick, and we were sitting and we were trying to decide, you know, how far were we going to walk and what route we were going to take. And we were looking at, you know, all the different wonderful, you know, plans you can make to do the Camino. Well, we had made the decision that we wanted to take about three weeks to to accomplish, you know, this adventure. And when we got to the part, well, how far is that? It turned out that our plan was to walk about 300 kilometers, which is about 200 plus miles. And I just had this moment and I said, wait a minute. I have about 200 plus victims, 200 plus miles. Huh, we could turn this into something. And my friend was thrilled. He thought this was a great idea. And it was his idea to to read the names to honor the victims and that we could make a video. So that's what we ended up doing is that I carried my handwritten log to Spain and Frederick was responsible to keep the time. So we divvied up the walk. We actually started in Leon, Spain, and you know, we marked off with t- by time so that we could equally go through and read all the names and have it end at um, the cathedral in Santiago. How fantastic. Thank you. You said in the article in the Washington Post, and I'm going to quote you here, I saw firsthand the scars that each murder leaves on a community, the damage that radiates from a single crime. Liz, how does an ordinary person cope with a role such as that? 240 times it resonated with you. The the way that I was able to cope is that I felt that I was giving back to the families anything that I could offer in regards to answers about the death of their loved one and and hopefully finding some justice for them. That was a way for me to cope Um, and really, you know, in each victim that do time and effort in being thorough in looking at, you know, what had happened and finding who did this and how they did it. And then again, bringing it to justice and letting the families know that, that we would be with them every step of the way. And just the, the uh, amazing gratitude that families would express to us, you know, just that we even talked to them. It just was such an an amazing experience to be able to help people in in their, you know, greatest moments of crisis and and tragedy. Um, That was very important to me and and gave me a lot of satisfaction and, and just feeling like I was actually making a difference for those families. Um, because, you know, you can't bring their loved one back, but if you can get them some answers, it really, really makes a difference. You were often the voice of comfort, I'm sure, and calm too, because there would be great extraordinary unrest and anxiety and sadness and grief, and and you here were this voice of comfort and calm. But Liz, who could possibly be your sounding board through all those years who listened to you well i'm very very fortunate dan to have wonderful family that i'm very close to and and my friends and like i said my my friends that helped me plan and uh, make possible the walk um and you know going to spain it makes a big difference in being able to, you know, do something that meant something to me, but meant mm. something to these families as well. Yeah. But also, 
being surrounded by, you know, the detectives that worked for me, we were able to lean on each other and really support each other. It was, it's, it's a great group that I, that I worked with and it, you know, it really got us through, you know, we, we couldn't solve them all, but we did the best we could. Yeah. You wrote, Every death was a loss to Albuquerque, the city where I grew up and later raised my children. Liz, it would have been very difficult to frame a future, though, for you and your family, seeing that danger so often. Oh, that's actually really insightful. And, you know, my children are grown now, and they will often reflect on how they would worry about me and you know, my, my own safety. But I also think that we, you know, we learned a lot and I was able to uh, pass on to my children that, you know, there are ways to cope and there are, you know, productive ways to cope. And, you know, this was what I was writing about in the Washington Post is mm. we have a, a terrible surge in, in violent crime in the U.S. and in particular in Albuquerque. I can't help but think that that a lot of it is because people just don't have the skills and the ability to cope, whatever that may be for them, you know, whether it's family or faith or whatever it is, it's missing and it's, it's tragic. And I think that I always instilled in my children, you've got to reach out for help. You've got to find a way to, to make it through whatever that is for you. There was a, a line in, in the piece in the Post where you said a disturbing factor is the pure irrational rage that seems increasingly to drive these grim numbers. Uncontrollable anger has always accounted for some murders, of course, but I've been struck in recent years by the greater role it plays in these cases. So let's talk about what you would like to see. I mean, it's an enormous vision for, for, for me to sort of ask you to say, what would you do if you could wave a wand? But what can we all do, do you think, um, to try to be more understanding, more patient and more kind? Well, I, I don't want to sound simplistic, but it really is for me that word empathy. Mm, yeah. I think that we should teach empathy to children. I think we should, you know, again, it, it's whatever perspective you're coming from, it all boils down to if you could walk a mile in someone else's shoes, if you can take a moment to think why they might be you know, cutting you off in traffic or, (laughs) or, or having a bad day themselves, it just would make such a difference. I I believe every profession, whether it's, uh, you know, police officers in law enforcement or whether it's doctors and nurses or, you know, whatever profession, it can only be improved by trying to understand where the person in your equation is coming from. And, you know, it sounds really simplistic, but I found in my work as a police officer that it made such a difference, not only in, in investigating homicides, when we would go in to, to talk to, you know, people that we suspected of murdering someone, the most effective investigations and the most effective um, interviews were when the detective showed true empathy for that person and the circumstances that they, you know, that led them to actually take someone's life. Mm. Um, You know, you'll often see in the movies or in the media, they portray police officers to be these you know, they're yelling at the person to tell them the truth. And, 
you know, banging their fist on the table or, or actually becoming physically violent with them. That just, that's just wrong and it doesn't work. But when you can actually listen to what the person is saying and acknowledge them for their pain and suffering or, or for their accomplishments. And then the next thing you know, you're talking about how things feel emotionally. That's when we would get confessions and we would get um, people telling us the truth about what happened because we were actually listening and acknowledging that person. Yeah, listening is such a critical skill, no matter what you do, really, even in life, even in the communication in your family and friends, it's, it's a critical thing to be able to do. Not everybody is a good listener. That's, it's a fact of life. You say in that piece, try to make empathy and compassion a reflex and not instant anger at anyone who has offended you online or in the real world. And I love this line, if a rage culture has been created, it can also be rolled back. I absolutely believe that. And I believe that each and every one of us has a responsibility to roll it back. I believe that our, you know, our political leaders, the leaders in our communities, and each and every one of us needs to stop and, and call out you know, whether it's bullying, uh, violent speech or hate speech or violent uh, behavior, that it is, it is wrong. We also, the flip side of that, which I also talk about in my piece, is it feels to me that the world has become a place where violence against people we don't agree with is okay and I, again, that just, it's just wrong. And violence against, you know, humans, beings being violent against other human beings is just wrong. <laughs> and if we call it out, no matter who it's against, we can start to roll that back. And if people start to remember, I love your poem, you remember yeah. that you know, each of these of these people are human beings as well. And to show them kindness and compassion is an honorable and something to be admired and held out as, you know, a good thing. And it just, you know, it's one person at a time, one step at a time. I think it can be done, but I think it needs to become you know, a movement. People yeah. need to to be standing up rather than this, like I said, this culture of rage that seems to really be taken. It's it has seemingly taken over the globe. Yeah. Well, I, I see it all the time. Yeah. I see it all the time. It seems that every day um, on social media, somebody sort of puts up a picture of somebody abusing a a, a shop assistant or there's road rage, you know, people, everybody has a camera in their car now and there's people punching on at the traffic lights and what have you. And you shake your head and think, gosh, you know, how have we come to this? I don't understand it myself. The very last line in the piece in the post says, every victim was somebody's son or daughter, sister or brother, friend or neighbor. Remember that. And I think if we all remembered that on a more regular basis, we might be more empathic to people. We might live a bit kinder. But there's a line, Liz, from the post piece that really drew me in. And it said, before cathedrals and vineyards, I called out the names of souls we found lying dead in their own driveways and bodies dumped in the street. I remembered these people had been erased by criminals, but I wanted them to be recalled in beautiful, unexpected places. So what did the other pilgrims and the Spanish make of what you were doing? Well, that was part of the amazing experience that I had. I have so many stories of people responding in such a positive way and, and being 
touched by what I was doing and wanting to hear the stories. Um, so as we went along and, and people would ask what we were doing because, you know, we would have this timer going off and then I would be videotaping ahead of me. You know, it was, I wasn't taking a selfie or <laughs> <laughs> taking video of us. I so we would continue walking and I would read these names. And so people were, you know, asking what we were doing. And, you know, I just, I had so many, so many touching um, interactions with people and not only them being supportive and touched by what I was doing, but then sharing their stories of their journey on the Camino. One particular story that stands out in my mind is, very early on in our walk, we hadn't actually told a lot of people yet what we were doing. And we had stopped to have lunch and uh, two pilgrims um, from the UK had had sat down to share lunch with us. And we just were talking about, you know, how it was going and where we were from. And I got up to use, use the restroom. And when I came back out, the one woman jumped up from her seat, ran over to me with tears streaming down her face and just embraced me and held onto me tightly saying, thank you, thank you. And I did not know that that my friend had told her while I was in the restroom what we were doing. And she was just, you know, bowled over with emotion and but very touching to me as well, you know, to to hear that people really understood what I was doing and why and were t- were touched by it, and it made people stop and think about how they were viewing, you know, victims of violence, and so it was it was it was amazing reactions from people. What a lovely bookend to your career too, Liz. Yes, well, and it's been, yes, a, a lovely bookend and it's it's led to a lot of really touching interactions. Mm, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I when I was planning my my walk, I wanted to read as much as I could and and learn a, a, about the Camino de Santiago. And one of the things that I read was that many pilgrims were making the journey to escort the souls of their loved ones to the edge of the earth. And I just, I loved that imagery. I loved that idea. And that's what I really wanted to do. And I wanted to share with you, um, after the Washington Post piece came out, I received an email from the son of one of the victims whose name I read. And he shared with me that um, his, his father had been murdered and we had found him in an alley. And he had always felt his father's murder remains unsolved to this day. And he felt that his father's soul was stuck in the alley until he learned about my walk and that he felt that I had been able to, you know, release his father's soul. And it was the most touching email. I I was really, you know, brought tears to my eyes and and touched my heart. Um, And, you know, that it just, it makes it very, very worthwhile um, as an, uh, that I accomplished what I set out to accomplish as that bookend, you know, to the end of my career. Oh, that's, that's, I've got goosebumps. That's such a great story. And, and this stopping every mile is, it's such a simple gesture, but Liz, it's also incredibly poignant. It's, it's such a touching and heartfelt thing to do. The question I want to ask is, Are you surprised by your capacity for kindness? But I'm sure you always were kind in your job. But this unexpected, almost 
unusual for a lifetime police officer, this extraordinary empathy. Were you surprised by your ability to to open up and to be so giving in this gesture, this enormous gesture? That's a very interesting question. I think the real answer to your question is that throughout my career, I would be surprised at the kindness of others. Mm. And I would see it all the time. And I would see not only the kindness of, you know, the citizens of my city, but the kindness of police officers helping people. And I really think not so much that I was surprised that I could be kind, but I just felt like I had learned so much about kindness from people because let's face it, police officers deal with people at their worst moments, whether it's their worst moments in their own behavior Mm. or they've, you know, they've lost someone tragically and it's just over and over, you know, I would be a witness to just these extraordinary acts of kindness in, in, in the midst of tragedy or crisis. And it became especially mm, important because of the, you know, fairly recent, um, I guess, how would I describe it? You know, that policing in the the U.S. has, you know, it's at a turning point. Mm. It's being reformed and, and there's a lot of mistrust that has built up between communities and um, police departments in the U.S. And it's very difficult for me. Yes, we have... Um, police officers who have, you know, done some, some bad things, but we also do have police officers who are very kind and very helpful and want their communities to be safer. It's just really important to me to, you know, that, that we acknowledge that those two things do both exist. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a great message. Wow. How fantastic. So take yourself back to the Camino, um, walking into the square in Santiago. What did you learn about yourself on that pilgrimage? Hmm. So many things. (laughs) (laughs) So many things. I think that I thought I had a handle on, you know, being busy, like I did, I thought I had a handle on not letting life sort of, you know, get ahead of me and being too busy and not having time for, and being on the Camino and just being able to reflect and walk and be, be quiet and really hear the sounds. It was such an amazing experience to just take things slow it, you didn't have to, I didn't have to be anywhere. I was doing something that felt truly authentic to me. And that's, that's what I wanted. And I think that that's something that I, that did surprise me that the walk for me was being truly authentic and how easy that was once I started walking and and saying the names and just seeing the sights and hearing the sounds and meeting the people and whatever each day brought it brought and that was probably the the most surprising thing is that now you know I try to capture that feeling each day Mm. and you know, many days that means 
getting out and just walking. (laughs) (laughs) It was a, a great learning experience. I would do it again in a second and I recommend it to anyone. But that's a lot of it. It's just that idea that you know what? You could walk all day, every day and eat amazing food that just, you never knew what was around the next corner, meet amazing people from all over the world. And um, there was a line in that poem you read about joy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, just experiencing this joy, but based on really simple things. Um, yeah, it really gr- it was really a grounding experience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when we have joy, we crave to share. We remember them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I know. It's such a great line. Such a great poem. Oh, oh gosh, I just absolutely love it. I'm looking forward to reading it again at the end of the of the podcast. Um, I've got a question here um, that I I I hope you'll be able to answer. But what's one thing, Liz, you'd say to someone listening right now who has lost a loved one to homicide or to crime? I would say remember them and do what feels right to you to to remember them, you know, to do something that memorializes them and to know that the criminal justice system, definitely in the U.S., and I'm going to guess around the world, is not by its nature, empathetic, sympathetic, Hmm. and that, you know, it, it, it can be very harsh on families, but to, you know, stick together and remember your memories of that person are what are the most important thing. Yeah. I think that that memorial, or I think it's the the word you used, where did I read it somewhere? Uh, Oh yeah. It was important to me to be able to give each person a memorial, unique, but also equal to the others. So you wanted, yes. yeah, you wanted to, you wanted to honour them all equally. Why was that so important? Do you think? Well, it goes back to what I described that when we would when we would get called out to a, a case, you know, a suspicious death that ended up being a murder it really always bothered me. And this still bothers me today. We still see this with, um, we just had a case in the U.S. of a woman who went missing and then, you know, it got a lot of media attention. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yes, and tragic. It's a tragic case. But there are so many missing women (laughs) who end up, having lost their lives. And And it just always really bothered me that society seems to view some victims as more tragic than others. And I really feel that that is not true. It's a loss of life, period. It's, you know, it doesn't matter where the person was from, what they looked like, what you know, ethnicity they were, what church they went to, or what job they had or didn't have, it was still a tragic loss of life. Mm. And I always battled with how to, you know, somehow equalize that, which it's very, very hard to do. It's very, very hard. I mean, it, it was just something that I struggled with. And then when we came up with this idea and, and that was part of, of what I wanted to do is that it had to be the moment. So when the timer went off, it didn't matter where we were, what we were seeing, what we were hearing, the, the camera came up and we kept walking and so 
it it turned out that the the footsteps really I think added to it. Mm. It was what we were doing at that moment, and um, you know I didn't I didn't pick that we would be hearing birds singing or the river flowing. It it was what we were hearing, and there were some remarkable you know moments, but it it felt to me that that made it unique for that person that I didn't choose like the most scenic, like some of them are along the highway because we were walking along the highway. Yeah. And some of them were, I, I would, you know, pick up the camera at their moment and I would be filming and suddenly you would hear church bells or you would Mm -hmm. suddenly hear music or birds singing, or dogs barking, or children playing. And it was just just such a, again, it was their moment in time. Yeah, and what a moment too. And what a place to have your moment in time when the last moment of your time was so catastrophic. Yes. And I love love that there's... I don't know if resolution is is the right word or even closure. I don't like that word closure much, but I just wonder if it's that moment in time that, as you say, sets them free. It's just fabulous. You mentioned the video. Um, where is it now? Where, where can we see it, Liz? So I have a website. It's iwalkforthem.com. So all one word, iwalkforthem.com. And so the website, there is a link to the video. The video is on YouTube, um, but you can access it from the website. And the website explains about the walk. It also lists the names, the dates of their death, and the, uh, the location that their video was shot. It's so fantastic. I can't wait for my listeners to watch it and and I'm sure you're going to get some messages of thanks and and some messages to say how much they enjoyed your story. It's just wonderful, Liz. Before we wind up, tell us a Camino story. Okay, well, I just, I just told you about that, you know, I tried to capture these unique moments and, you know, they were what they were. And as... As we were going through, my my friend that was helping me and walking with me uh, became ill. And I walked two days all alone with, while he recovered from, from being uh, ill, getting a little stomach bug. And I had come to the point where I was to, to read the names of three children, siblings that had been murdered in Albuquerque um, the same day. They were murdered in their own home and it was time to read their names. And this was a particularly difficult case, uh, as you can imagine. Of course. So I, it was three siblings, two uh, little boys and a little girl. And when I went to say the little girl's name, as I picked the camera up, I heard an owl hooting. And and I read the name. Well, I didn't capture the owl. And when I put the camera down, I turned it off because that's what I would do. I would just take, you know, it was like a 10 second clip where I read the name. And I thought, oh, I, I can't believe I didn't get the owl hooting. Well, when I put the camera down, the owl hooted again. So I thought, well, I, I'm going to read the name again. Maybe I can get it this time. So I went to pick up the camera, but before I hit record, the owl hooted. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. I read the name again. I turned the camera off, put the camera down. The owl hooted again. And I thought, okay, I'm going to try one more time. I, it, it's such a beautiful sound. 
And so, again, so remarkable that it happened right then. Again, as I picked the camera up, the owl hooted, but was before I hit record. I put the camera down and I decided that the it was the owl's way of telling me that the most important thing was her name. And I heard the owl and the owl was there with me on the walk and, and knew about Olivia. And, but the most important thing, this is what I took the takeaway I, you know, had was that the owl was telling me, no, her name is the most important thing. That's a great story, Liz. Oh, my gosh. I'm so delighted to talk with you. Um, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's so great. Iwalkforthem.com. Congratulations on the website. Congratulations on what you've been able to achieve. Congratulations on a wonderful career. And I'm sure just by talking to you that the people of Albuquerque are all the poorer for you hanging up the badge. Um and congratulations, Liz, for being you. Thank you for taking the time to honour the forgotten, the victims and their families, because your pilgrimage was a slow reflection of love. And it could be the answer to so many problems. It might just be as simple as love. So thanks, Liz. It's, it's actually been an honour talking to you. Uh, Buen Camino. Buen Camino. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. My guest this week was Liz Thompson, a former police officer in charge of the Homicide Unit in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the United States of America. That website again, iwalkforthem.com. I started the podcast reading the wonderful poem by Sylvan Caymans and Rabbi Jack Riemer from a Jewish prayer book. At the rising of the sun and at its going down, we remember them. At the blowing of the wind and in the chill of winter, we remember them. At the opening of the buds and in the rebirth of spring, we remember them. At the blueness of the skies and in the warmth of summer, we remember them. At the rustling of the leaves and in the beauty of autumn, we remember them. At the beginning of the year and when it ends, we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. When we are weary and in need of strength, we remember them. When we are lost and sick at heart, we remember them. When we have joy we crave to share, we remember them. When we have decisions that are difficult to make, we remember them. When we have achievements that are based on theirs, we remember them. As long as we live, they too will live, for they are now a part of us as we remember them. For the closer this week, I wouldn't normally do something like this, but I, I want to turn to something that Liz wrote. It was her vision for a better community, and this is from the Washington Post piece. And Liz says that her vision for a better community starts in all of our communities. She wrote this, I have since returned to the department as a civilian to work on cold cases. When I recently read how the US murder rate has spiked, I wished I could say the FBI numbers were a surprise. I can't. I used to report Albuquerque's crime data to the feds. Murder stats have stories to tell. Some can mislead, some hold our thorniest truths. A disturbing factor is the pure irrational rage that seems increasingly to drive these grim numbers. Uncontrollable anger has always accounted for some murders, of course, but I've been struck in recent years by the greater role it plays in these cases. By August, Albuquerque had already equaled its record for homicides with 81, set in 2019. In recent years, the data showed that inane, petty disputes increasingly sparked killings. People die over absurdities, dibs on a car wash stall, stolen weed, getting cut off in traffic or beer pong gone wrong. More and more, guns are likely to be involved. Nationally, the firearm homicide rate increased 26% between 2010 and 2019. One dark thread winds through murder statistics. 
In part, it explains when ordinary everyday irritation or resentment might turn to homicidal fury. Killers generally feel powerless over their circumstances. Having lost control over their lives, they may commit violence in an attempt to regain a semblance of it, and the ultimate exercise of control over life is taking someone else's. The pandemic no doubt exacerbated that sense of helplessness. A dangerous sense of lurking chaos has been in the air. Add to that the contemporary turn towards simple meanness online and in the media with bullying offered admired and nastiness rewarded. Death threats replace debate. Inch by inch, rage becomes the norm. In that poisonous atmosphere, tragedies are inevitable. There are plenty of solutions perennially offered for combating the rise of violent crime, improved education and more opportunity, better social services. But these are big projects that would take years, decades to have an impact. They also don't speak to what individual people can do. One thing each of us can contribute is consciously working to lower the social rage level. Try to make empathy and compassion a reflex and not instant anger at anyone who has offended you online or in the real world. If a rage culture has been created, it can also be rolled back. It would also help if everyone, law enforcement, the helping professions, lawmakers, the media, the general public, looked on every loss of life as a tragedy. Not just the sympathetic victim in a widely publicised case, but also those who led troubled lives and whose passing is hardly noted. Every victim was somebody's son or daughter, sister or brother, friend or neighbour. Remember that. Man, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? Liz Thompson, the retired police officer from Albuquerque, New Mexico. What a wonderful story. Keep walking, everybody. Stay safe, stay connected. I'll be back again next week. I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way Somewhere